are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. The deadline to get your application in for the spring vintage of Village Global Accelerator is March 1st. Companies that have been through the accelerator have raised from some of the best venture funds in the world, like A16Z, Lux, Spark, Bessemer, Founders Fund, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash accelerator. Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Josh Clementi of Levels. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Eric, I'm happy to be here. Okay, so Josh, by, by way of introduction, you're a co-founder of Levels. Uh, why don't you describe what Levels is and what is the story about how, how you came to, how and why you came to start it? Yeah, so Levels is the bio-wearable that tells you how your nutrition and lifestyle are affecting your health in real time. So we're bringing real-time molecule sensing, in this case, glucose, which is one of the primary molecules that we get our energy from. And we're, we're measuring that with uh, wireless sensors that you wear on the body and then interpreting and providing insights based on it in real-time in uh, a handset app. And so this all kind of started almost as like a patient zero experience for me. I, I was working at SpaceX on life support systems and became intensely interested in metabolism and physiology during my time there. I uh, just saw some really interesting research, was kind of surprised that I had never really heard much about the like sort of deep energy systems that, that we're all kind of interfacing with every day. We're manipulating them with the way we sleep, the way we eat, uh, the amount of stress we're dealing with. And yet I had never really thought about how I'm making these choices and what the implications are for me long term. So I started to take interest in this, um, actually started pricking my finger a, a lot just to measure my blood sugar to see if there was anything interesting going on. Some of this was in an attempt to figure out why I was experiencing these like fatigue waves throughout the day. I was kind of just brushing them off as burnout and something I needed to push through, but I was, I was having lots of ups and downs. And ultimately, I, I got a CGM after being turned down by my physician a few times and I found out that I was either borderline pre-diabetic or, or fully pre-diabetic, depending on who you ask. And this is despite never having a weight issue, never having any blood test flagged, uh, being a CrossFit level one trainer at the time, now level two, uh, taking physical fitness very seriously and, and thinking I was doing everything right. And so this was like kind of the, the third insult, which really kind of changed my life in a sense. And I, I chose to leave what I was doing at the time, leave mechanical engineering, change industries and essentially 
start on this path of learning about metabolism and physiology very meaningfully and teaming up with a really amazing group of people who are planning to reverse these trends of metabolic dysfunction with real-time data. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And and talk about the, the, uh, the, the you, you mentioned that you were pre-diabetic. Talk about sort of the uh, rise of just diabetes in general. It, it's, can you talk more about how that's evolved over time in terms of yeah. why it's grown? Absolutely, yeah. So um, part of the process of realization for me was just like pulling the curtain off of these crazy statistics that I, I had never really heard about but blew my mind. And, and one of those is once I found out that I was in that like borderline range, I, I was thinking, Oh, this must be really rare. It's crazy how I, you know, I'd never thought that I would have this, this sort of like pre-diabetes situation going on. I wonder how many people are like me. turns out 88% of us adults are metabolically unhealthy. According to a study from two years ago, uh, the university of North Carolina, 90 million or about 88 million us adults are pre-diabetic and 84% of them don't know they are pre-diabetic. So it turns out I was actually in a pretty large group of people who are steadily trending towards this really uh, unfortunate and avoidable situation, which is type two diabetes without having any idea. And the reason for that is that we don't pay attention to the markers of metabolic dysfunction until you've already broken. One specific example is when I wanted to measure my, my glucose in real time using a continuous glucose monitor, my doctor said, you don't need that. You're not diabetic. Now, the, the problem is that glucose dysfunction builds compounds over time. So choices are being made, which are causing systems like the glucose and insulin control loop, which we can get into more if you want, but basically it's just the way your hormones are able to break down your food. Those things break down slowly, but they break down steadily. And so if things don't change, if you don't make better decisions, you will continue to get worse. And if you have no idea that you're at any risk, Unfortunately, we, we don't pay attention to it an, until you are in the diagnosed category. And at that point, there's a lot of downstream complications. And I mean, this is like higher risk of infertility, higher risk of stroke, of cardiovascular disease. Alzheimer's is actually being called type 3 diabetes because of how close the relationship is to type 2 and prediabetes. You know, it's this very wide range of complications that happen typically in, in correlation with what starts as preventable lifestyle choices that we're all making every day, but we're just making them blind. Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned we can go more into that loop uh, if, if we want. Can you, can you go more into it? Yeah. So uh, basically we all get energy from one of two main systems. It's either from, from fat or from sugar. Uh, basically we call it, we should call the sugar that we can metabolize glucose. And so when you eat carbohydrates, those break down into your bloodstream uh, as glucose. And then a hormone insulin is released from the pancreas and the insulin is kind of the key that allows your cells to open up, let glucose in. And then that glucose, that sugar is turned into energy inside the cell. Now, the problem is that if glucose is elevated very quickly into very high levels, insulin also has to correspondingly be released in, in high levels. And, and so those high concentrations of insulin, if that's repeated over and over again, they can lead to this numbing situation where essentially the cells stop responding to the signal of insulin. And this is really dangerous when you have high blood sugar um, and your, your body is trying to get that out of your, out of your bloodstream and into the tissues, but it can't because your cells are, are experiencing that insulin resistance. And it's that situation where you are insulin resistant with high glucose where we call that diabetes, but essentially all of the complications you're, uh, start to, to show up where that high glucose, which is very reactive, starts to really damage 
uh, all of the proteins and tissues in your body and things like retinopathy, you know, avoidable blindness, uh, unfortunately, all the way through to amputations, loss of taste, loss of touch, loss of sight, like all of these terrible complications of type 2 diabetes, which many of us don't think about. And frankly, most of us won't experience, but uh, some degree of metabolic dysfunction touches almost everyone in this country right now. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, 88% of US adults are metabolically unhealthy. And, and this shows up, you know, if anything from high blood pressure all the way through to those much more much, much worse complications I just touched on. And that's due to this rampant uh, and unfortunately hidden breakdown of the glucose insulin feedback loop. T totally. Why don't you talk about uh, how you thought about just what's the, the big vision for, for, for levels and, and sort of how you thought about wedging your, your way up to it? Yeah, I mean, uh, essentially, we, we've got this wearable trend where, um, and really the decentralization of health and wellness, where, uh, you know, everything from Fitbit, Peloton, Whoop, Aura, you, you've kind of seen these movements coming in waves as people essentially want to take their health and fitness into their own hands, and they want it to be convenient, and they also want it to be uh, sort of effortless and behind the scenes in the sense, like, these devices are taking measurements all the time and then surfacing an insight. You know, I wake up in the morning, I turn on my whoop or I open my whoop app and I look at my recovery score and it's taking a huge amount of complex data, my heart rate variability, my heart rate through the night, how much strain I took on. Uh, and then it's just giving me one score and saying, here's how well you slept. Here's how well you recovered essentially. And that's really insightful. It helps me basically stick to patterns of behavior that improve my sleep. Now what's missing is that uh, we don't have anything like that for nutrition. So, you know, every single day we're going to sit down and we're going to eat something for lunch. And, you know, if I ask someone, what are you going to eat for lunch and why? Nine times out of 10, I get a blank stare. I'm going to eat something that tastes good or something that someone recommended to me on the internet, or, or I don't know, something my mom used to cook for me. There, there's just all of a sudden we get like this empty answer because none of us have feedback loops for what we're eating. And we are what we eat, truly. We break down the foods that we, that we eat, we turn them into energy, and we build new tissues from them. And it's critically important that what we're eating and why can be answered with data. And, and so, especially in this situation when there's an epidemic of metabolic dysfunction, we, we've got to take it in our own hands to close the loop between the actions we're taking and the reactions our bodies are experiencing. And so the vision for levels is that we can reverse these monumental trends in metabolic dysfunction by not, you know, solving the problem at a social scale with some sort of policy or a one size fits all diet, but just giving the individual better information at the moment that they need it to, to guide decisions and then doing that across many, many people. And, you know, you do that across enough people and you have social scale change where everyone's making data driven choices. They have confidence in the nutrition choices they're making, and they can start to guide in, in a direction rather than having no idea where they are and where they're heading. Yeah, that's good, that's good context. Why don't we talk about just at a high level, like my understanding of our, our uh, knowledge of, of nutrition over the past few decades has been pretty suspect in that we thought we knew more than we did or that, you know, the, the food pyramid itself was, was poorly uh, designed or, or framed. When you talk about sort of the, the, the history of, of how much do we actually know about what people should be eating um, and how that's evolved uh, over time and where are we right now in terms of how confident are we in, in just the science of nutrition? It's really, really tricky to study nutrition effectively. You know, most of the studies that end up getting published, 
um, they get reduced down to a single headline. It's like eggs are good now. Eggs are eggs are bad again. You know, it, it's that's what we're all kind of used to. And what those headlines are contingent on are typically epidemiology studies where people are asked to fill out surveys, and they, the survey just asks you how how often you eat a certain food. And that goes on for a long time and they measure outcomes and they just see who has a higher likelihood of certain events based on these survey responses. So there's, it's actually not a controlled trial where you are connecting cause and effect. And the problem with that is that uh, these are very easy to, to become, I think, interest oriented. And so you end up with science that is, it, it's kind of trying to prove a point. They're setting out to, to, with an agenda, I think in some cases. And it's unfortunate because you can get data that is published and shows any perspective you want. And what this has led to, and, and there have been there have been consumer studies that show that 60% of people completely ignore nutrition studies because they're so contradictory. Uh, you know, when you can find two papers published within a month of each other that say the exact opposite thing, people just lose hope. They throw their hands up. And so, you know, I think there are some really obvious themes that are arising. And, and one of them is that processing of foods and added sugar are ultimately at the root of essentially all metabolic dysfunction we have. That you know, there are certainly bad fats and, and trans fats and oils and things that have kind of been vilified a bit more, but are also certainly something we should avoid. But in general, I think that the the amount of sugar consumption we have in this country, especially, you know earlier and earlier in life uh, is really dangerous. And it's leading to a situation where we're basically, we're dealing with energy toxicity. Like we're constantly eating very, very high energy foods that break down quickly into our bloodstreams. And yet the workforce is moving more and more towards sedentary work where we're at desks, we're not moving very often. And so we're not using that. We're not burning that fuel and you end up with a surplus. Your bloodstream is constantly jam-packed with, with that glucose and you end up creating that mechanism we talked talked about of insulin numbness, insulin resistance. And ultimately, I think those are kind of big themes that we're seeing. Now, there's a ton of personal variability, like which foods are going to break down, how quickly in whom. That's the degree of data that I think we can get to now with individualized measurement. So eventually we'll be able to say, you know, for 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 me, I may have a really major response to something like oatmeal, um, which I do. But for other people, uh, like David on my team, you know, he can eat oatmeal and have a much better uh, metabolic response. His, his body can can uh, break that down and use it effectively and much more quickly than I can. And so that's the degree of personalization we can get to, where you can really craft like a personally uh, specific diet and lifestyle that works for you. Totally. So, what do you think we st still don't yet understand within the science and, and need to? Uh, like if we're having this conversation 10 years from now, how might our scientific understanding be, be very different? What do you expect to be different? Well, I think some of the big things are understanding how different phenotypes, so like different types of, of people, like you can basically categorize people based on their like affinity to gaining weight, for example. And then there, there are all these other, you know, similar relationships that are showing up. And, and of course, this is anecdotal. This is just me kind of saying what, what we're seeing. But I think we're going to learn a lot more about this is those phenotypes, like the person who gains weight will often have a very different blood sugar and insulin profile than someone who uh, is very, very lean and almost can't gain weight. And you know, we, we kind of always hear this in, in societies, like some people are, have tried a diet and they just can never lose weight. They've tried everything. 
other people, um, you know, just are, we're, we're all envious because they're just constantly shedding weight. They're always so skinny. Well, those are very real phenotypes. And so to look at those people and see what's actually happening behind the scenes, what, what's happening in their bodies, that hormone mechanism that is cranking out insulin, uh, the, the mechanisms that are putting out cortisol, the stress hormones, uh, what are they eating and how are they sort of, what are the long-term outcomes? It's really important that we get granular data on that and that those people are eating and living lifestyles that are supporting the better outcome. And uh, my point in all this is that there, there are some early research uh, results that have been published. There's a really interesting one from 2015. It was called the Weizmann Institute trial, the personalized nutrition trial. And they put continuous glucose monitors on 800 people who did not have diabetes. And they basically showed that two people can eat the exact same two foods. In this case, it was a banana and a cookie made with wheat flour. And they can have equal and opposite blood sugar responses. And that's the degree of variability that is out there. And so what I'm interested in and what I'm really excited to learn is why that is the case and what the long-term implications of that are. Meaning, uh, is it really true that there could be dietary decisions that are ultimately opposite each other that are healthy for two different individuals? And, you know, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't think that we're going to be like eating granulated sugar really at all in the future because we're going to learn just how energy toxic that food is. But I do think that specifically like fruits versus grains and the, you know, the degree of animal protein and uh, the degree of starch that we eat, all of that can be uh, really broken down and turned into a, a very, very specific and personal lifestyle choice. And and so I think we're going to get to that point where you, you kind of know the category of metabolizer you are uh, based on a, a ton of data that you've developed over long periods of time. And you'll be making really optimal choices guided by that data. Yeah, that, that, that's helpful. Uh, what about, can you talk a bit about the, the debates? Like if, if a few nutritionists were, were on or, or nutrition science ex experts were on this podcast, what are sort of the key arguments that we're still um, having with, within the industry or just still trying to, to figure out? Well, there's a ton of different perspectives. And I think one of the issues is that a lot of the nutrition conversation is like, it's very polarized and people bring, I, I think, an emotional perspective to, to food. So you have almost like different sects that are each like, you know, you have people who are carnivore and you have people who are keto and people who are, you know, they almost have labels, you know, and I think that's one of the big things is like trying to solve the philosophy for everyone with one shot. And, and that I, I just personally disagree with. And I think at levels we've shown that, that there really is, does not seem to be a one size fits all approach. So I think that's a really big issue is that we, we have to, we have to get rid of these labels and these like large generalizations on how everyone should eat and instead look to the data and try to refine it into the, the most effective and sort of targeted set of information that can be delivered to the person who, who just wants to be healthier. Another one is the like, I think very simplified uh, mainstream perspective on calories. So, you know, we, we kind of always think about calories as the unit of metabolism or like the thing that you have to change if you want to gain or lose weight. And although that's like thermodynamically, that is correct, that the food you eat has these energy uh, units of calories and, and how your body uses those. Like if you burn more than you consume, you should lose weight. Uh, if you eat more than you, than you burn, you should, you should gain weight. You know, that's, that is true. 
But the thing is, is that we're much more complicated. We're, you know, the human body is like a, it's a giant wet chemistry set where everything is, you know, chemicals being like mixed together and responding to other chemicals. And so if a person's body is like, if you've biased in one direction, meaning you have more of a certain chemical in your body at all times than another, that will change how available uh, your energy is or where it is sort of sent. So some people are pretty clearly biased towards gaining weight. Uh, they may have more insulin at all times. And so they should make different decisions about calories than people who do not have that situation. And, and like, I think it's really important that we be more specific and tell people that, it, you know, for those of you that have been struggling for a long time, counting calories, it may be that the foods you're eating are inducing a hormonal response that is fighting against you. And it, it really does not just come down to a very basic three-term equation on a piece of paper. You know, human beings are much more complex than that. And, you know, as much as I like the elegance of it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't work out for, for many people out there. And, uh, you know, ultimately the, the implications of what we eat is much more complicated. That makes sense. So maybe let's focus a bit more on, 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 on levels specifically. What, what can we expect? Uh, what sort of, uh, what's, what's upcoming? Uh, uh, share more about, pull behind, take us behind the curtain a bit. Yeah. So, uh, right now, you know, we're in a super exciting phase of the company. We've, we have been in development for about a year now on the, the main product. So on the, the software and, and ultimately like what the levels product is, is you wear this continuous glucose monitor. So it's a, it's a wireless little patch that you put on your arm and that is sensing glucose molecules in your skin. And then that sends the data wirelessly to your phone. And so levels is building the insights platform on top of that CGM data. So we're pulling in that raw data, we're analyzing a, a huge number of metrics about it. And then we're spitting out these uh, simple scores that you can use to make better choices. And so like, for example, you'll eat a meal, um, you log that in the app by taking a picture, type in a few words, and then we, we watch how your body responds to that meal over the next two hours effectively. And we look at how your, your glucose control plays out and then we give you a score for that meal. And then you could eat an, you could eat that meal again, say the next day and make a different decision. So perhaps the first time you ate it, you ate, ate the meal and then you sat on the couch and, and watched TV or did email. Um, you'll get a score for that. And then the next day you eat the meal again and, and maybe you go for a walk for 20 or 30 minutes. So we will look at the two differences or those two responses and we'll be able to compare them and show you how different decisions you make compound together. And so that walk can completely change the way your body is able to metabolize the food you ate. And that shows up very straightforwardly in, in some of the features of the app. And so the entire goal is that we are connecting little micro optimizations. Um, you know, we're kind of giving you the receipts for them and you can over time start to see specifically how, you know, the levers of nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress management actually affect your body's metabolic control. And, um, and so we've been in development for going on a year or a little over a year now and, uh, invitation only, you know, we haven't, we, we have a very limited capacity because we really are optimizing for customer feedback. And so I'm, I'm very excited this year. You know, we're trending towards our, our full launch when people will be able to get access to this at a, a wider scale and, um, you know, growing the team and, and taking on our, our very first research initiatives, which uh, I'm super stoked for. That's awesome. Well, that, that's a good place to, uh, to, to close. For people who are, uh, who have been excited by this conversation and, and want to get deeper into 
uh, into into levels. Where can you point them? And any last words of uh, of encouragement and how to use it well and, and get the most out of it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so you can go to the the website levelshealth.com and our blog is on there. And you know that that's where we are working to explain how metabolism touches all of us. You know, it's kind of an abstract word. We don't use it a lot in the mainstream, but it is the way our bodies are functioning every single day. It underlies physical health and mental health. And so, um, you know, definitely check out the blog, see how uh, these, these mechanisms are, are working for you. And then, you know, when it comes to seeing how people are using the Levels program, you can follow us on, on Instagram and Twitter at Levels. And there's a lot of really interesting you know, beta use cases that are that are showing up there. A lot of people sharing their, their lessons learned. And so, yeah, definitely follow along there. And I'm looking forward to getting this sort of out there and increasing accessibility as soon as possible. Yeah. And I, um, it, to, to prep for this, I was listening to a few other podcasts you, you've done and, and, and reading the blog. Uh, and I just say that to the listeners that, uh, if you're curious about what you heard here, you, you guys have done a phenomenal job on, on content, more generally educating, uh, the, uh, the, the, the public at large about, about, about these topics. So I recommend you, uh, you dig into a lot of the great content you guys have on your blog and, and in the podcast sphere more, more broadly. Yeah. Awesome. Um, you know, my co-founder Casey, she's a Stanford trained surgeon and functional medicine doctor. And she and I have been doing a lot of podcasts and she does an exceptional job of breaking down the, uh, you know, the deeper mechanisms of biochemistry. And, and then obviously, you know, we're just raising awareness of metabolic health and metabolic fitness, which is this concept that we're bringing, which that, you know, metabolic health is not binary. You, you are not either healthy or unhealthy. It's just like physical fitness. You go to the gym, you work hard, you put in focus, effort, and repetition to improve your strength. That's the same with metabolism. And you can improve these things over time. And, and so it's, it's just fun to get that message out there and um, give people that power, you know, the understanding that you can take health into your own hands and, and data helps there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to close it. But I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention that uh, a couple of the co-founders also met at uh, d- during the on-deck program, uh, and we're, we're very fortunate to uh, to have that as a success story. Absolutely, yeah, Sam and Andrew. I, yeah. I love that story. Awesome. Josh, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. It, it's been a great episode. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's something few Prince Edward Islanders could possibly contemplate, a summer without tourists. 2020 wasn't quite like that, but in some places it came pretty close. Cottages stayed shuttered. The Anne of Green Gables musical in Charlottetown shut down. Only half as much traffic as usual crossed the Confederation Bridge. That's the link between PEI and the mainland. 
And now there's another season of uncertainty looming, and it's not at all clear whether people on PEI will be able to rely on tourists coming back anytime soon. So it's a good time to make that trip across the Confederation Bridge, virtually, of course, as part of our series called Canada's Road Ahead. Over the bridge, heading east, we find the town of Surrey. Hi. Hi there. How are you today? Good. Good. It's a little snack. Sure. First stop, right here on the main strip at McPhee's Market. How you doing? Good. How are things this morning? Good. What's up on deck? Meatloaf. Meatloaf, yeah. Alan McPhee owns the grocery store along with the home hardware building next door. You'll notice the now familiar pandemic changes, plexiglass dividers, arrows on the floor. But Alan's also rigged up the doors, so you can't get in unless you've taken a squirt of hand sanitizer. He remembers what it was like adjusting to this new reality. The biggest thing that hit us was an announcement by the government that up to 3,000 people could die, which was a 2% rating, and uh, that really put the whole community in a panic. We had staff out on stress leave. Uh, People really didn't know what was coming at them, particularly with this dire prediction that, that had been made. We had to put security in right off the bat because we are the uh, terminal point for the Madeline Island Ferry. So we had a lot of off-island people coming in, and there was a, a provincial regulation that didn't permit off-island people to come into public premises. We would serve them in the parking lot, or we would take food to the ferry terminal, but we weren't allowed to let people come in the store, and it took a while to get that sorted out. But people were scared. We're, we're very scared. And we have a very old population here and very limited medical resources. So the theory is we cannot afford to have that here. And, you know, there were 70 grocery stores in Quebec closed due to COVID. And if our store closed in this community, it would have a severe impact on the community as well. The tourist season wasn't here this summer, and it kind of reminded me of what business was like back in the 80s when... There was no internet, there was no bridge, there wasn't a lot of tourism infrastructure. If a car came up the street with plates from off-island, you'd look to see where it was from, you know, uh, because the tourist season now is very robust, but it reminded me of what it was like 35 years ago when there just weren't a lot of people here and there wasn't a lot of infrastructure to support them. It was a very simple summer. Strangely enough, our business is very good. There's great winners and great losers in this economy right now. The airline industry and the tourism industry is, is down, but the grocery business and the billing supply business are, is way up. We missed all our summer residents and tourists who are very valuable to us and a very important part of our community. But because local people aren't traveling, there's been an offset there that's been more than the tourist business. Aiden to cash, please. Aiden. I'm not optimistic for 2021. I don't think we're going to be back to anything close to normal. I think the cruise business is shot. I think the air travel business is shot. I don't believe we'll have vaccine distribution anywhere near the level it's got to be. We just have to do what it takes to survive and to take care of ourselves and each other and keep our eye on the ball for the, for the long run. 
You heard Alan McPhee there talking about the ferry to the Magdalen Islands. Before the pandemic, you might grab an ice cream from Shirley's on your way to the ferry, maybe stop at the Bluefin Family Restaurant just off Main Street. It's the Sky Blue Wood Building. It's got an unassuming sign out front. At least that's what it used to look like. Amber Jenkins was the owner of the Bluefin. Amber, good morning. Good morning. Tell me about the Bluefin. Your, your connection to this place goes goes back a while. It goes back a long while. Um, the Bluefin was established over 45 years ago in the town. And when I was uh, 16, that was my first job. So you go from working at the Bluefin to eventually owning the Bluefin. How did that come to pass? Eventually, yeah. I had been living in Fort McMurray and working and kind of traveling back and forth. And I left Fort McMurray uh, due to the wildfire. And when I left, uh, there was an opportunity to buy the Bluefin when I arrived home. So um, after I thought about it for a little while, I did that. I had never done anything like that before. I, I stayed in the industry after I had that first job, um, no matter where I was, because I loved it. But I had never been an owner, and it was um, it was a big it was a big decision to make for people who'd never been. I mean, describe the vibe of of the Bluefin. What was it like? Obviously, I wasn't around when it had originally been established, but it was big and open. Uh, the dining room would seat a hundred people if you needed it to. The walls were all burn board wood. Local families would fill the dining room any given Sunday. That was probably our busiest day of the week. And also tourists, returning tourists, always found their way back there. It was definitely a welcoming atmosphere for sure. So if you go back a year or so, um, when did you realize that things were starting to change? In the middle of March in our province, the entire island had been kind of watching the, the national news and the global news. And then eventually around March 15th, things were starting to get a little scarier. And by the 18th of March, our dining rooms were closed down. So that impacted my business a great deal. And everybody was shell-shocked. Every owner that I knew really had to pivot fast and think, what am I going to do now? So it didn't go in very many phases. It was just within a week, we were closed. You use that word pivot, which is this word that everybody has used over the course of this year to try and figure out how to go from here to here uh, and become something else. What was that like for you, trying to pivot to an operation where you could still, you know, bring some money in, but you have to abide by all of the the health guidelines that you mentioned that were put out? Pivot is like the number one word of any business owner in 2020. It's our favorite word to use. If you don't use that word or you don't do exactly that, you, you won't make it. It was my birthday, the day that dining rooms got closed down. So I took two days off and tried to evaluate what I was going to do because I really didn't know what I was going to do. It was a huge place that demanded a lot of revenue to keep going. Like it didn't, I had no idea what to do. So after uh, thinking about it and discussing it uh, with my partner, um, who's also familiar with the industry and what it would have taken, the province had already decided that although dining rooms were closed down, it would be takeout only. I was terrified for my staff safety, and I was also terrified for my business's livelihood. So uh, when it came to making decisions, I did a massive layoff, and I left myself to run the entire place. How did you wrap your head around this? Well, I'm a silver lining type of person. So if I knew that nobody would have a job to come back to if, if we uh, didn't do something, 
having my staff go home for an undetermined amount of time, uh, I rationalized that because I was in fear of their safety. And I also uh, believed that maybe this won't last forever. The takeout goes well um, and, and, you know, it, it keeps the business kind of afloat. What happened on the 6th of May? On the 6th of May, COVID wasn't over. Everybody was in our first phase of the lockdown on Prince Edward Island. We we had a, a fire at the Bluefin and it destroyed the entire building. Oh my goodness. How did you learn about this? I was with my family at the time and a local messaged me on uh, Facebook Messenger, that platform, and told me the building was on fire. That was the first I'd heard of it, uh, 7.30 in the evening. What do you remember about how you reacted? Um, well, I grew up in a, in a place called Little Pond, about 15 minutes uh, outside of the town. So I drove very, very fast, and uh, I got to the town limits and seen the smoke and the fire. And I hit my phone, you know, like when you think back on things like this, my phone rang so many times uh, during that drive because people were trying to make sure that I wasn't inside the building. And that still gives me goosebumps because there was so many people that was very concerned. And likewise myself, I was contacting the only two people that could have possibly been in there because once I could establish that they were safe, that was the most important thing. Do you know what, what, what caused the fire? We do not know what caused the fire. It was a really difficult fire to fight. And it was a really difficult fire to determine uh, where it started because on the 6th, it burned down. And on the 7th, it burned down again. Uh, it started again about 2 o'clock in the afternoon the following day. Something had reignited and that completely destroyed the rest of the building. Yeah. And you'd been, I mean, you were with your family, as you mentioned. You've been going through a lot outside of, of work. I don't know how much you want to talk about that. But I mean, th- there was a lot going on in your life um, before even the fire caught on. I had been serving the public, so I didn't feel comfortable, you know, serving the public uh, on a takeout model with very little knowledge of how COVID spread or if I could still be a danger to my family. So I didn't spend very much time around uh, them. And that was difficult in its own sense. So just everything like to um, comfort someone. We had a a very tragic death in the family to Mm -hmm. comfort uh, each other. It was a difficult time for so much to happen because COVID eliminated the idea of hugging and it was a hard year to lose anyone or anything because it was a hard year to comfort people. In a small community, um, what did it mean going through all of this with people? One of the things we know, and just speak with people across the country, is that in, in small communities in particular, people kind of rally around in moments of, of tragedy and difficulty. Did you see that support and feel that support from people in your community? For sure. Yeah. All I, all I really did feel was support and love and as, comfort, as much comfort as they could provide, uh, given the circumstances. There was a, a lot of sadness, but there was also a lot of gratitude. What did you do next? It was May, and we come from a fishing family as well. So everybody was preparing for a fishing season. And uh, I definitely needed to take uh, the advice of 
the loved ones around me that told me to take some time to think about what's next, but also take some time for yourself because I had a huge loss to grieve. Yeah. So I did that. And then you decide you're going to open another place. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, the new restaurant that we opened in December, uh, the, the beginning of December, is called Straight Goods. And we actually moved into a smaller space. It's an entirely new restaurant. Uh, it's an entirely new concept. It was decided that because we're still very much in COVID that to build the restaurant around an idea of a lot of takeout or in the event that a second wave or a third wave or a fourth wave even will make it so we cannot open our dining room with a smaller seating area and menu items that can be taken out well. What have you learned about yourself in the last year? Um, What I've learned the most is that I definitely needed to slow down a little bit. I needed to take more time for myself. I also learned a great deal about the community that we come from. The support that the Bluefin had was unbelievably humbling, but the craziest thing was the way that people came out for us whenever we opened in Fortune. Uh, it's It's about 10 minutes from the old restaurant. I see a lot of familiar faces. I see new ones and people talk about it. And uh, they call it the old bluefin. They call it straight goods. They call it the new place, mm. whatever the case may be. We're calling this uh, this kind of little road trip that we're on um, Canada's Road Ahead. What is the road ahead for you in, in 2021? Given everything that you've gone through, um, there's a lot that's happened and there's a lot that's coming up for you as well. The road ahead is just, um, I'm not convinced that we will be in this situation uh, with COVID-19 forever. I think that on Prince Edward Island, we live in such a great province where we're able to travel around and masks are mandatory, but we can be amongst the people that we love. And not every other province has that. I'm so happy that we're here. Um, But the road ahead is is full of opportunity uh, despite COVID-19 and despite the fire. I'm I'm certain of that. And you're getting married. And I'm getting married. Congratulations. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. 2021 will be better than 2020, I think. (laughs) I think it'll be better, yeah. So when I roll into uh, Straight Goods um, and I sit down, what do I have to order? You have to order breaded veggies. That, That recipe's been handed down for the last number of years in the Surrey area and... You have to get them. They're served with sour cream. Some people ask for them with ranch. Uh, You have to get fish and chips. Uh, We have a lobster roll on the menu in the spring. Yeah, those are some of the good ones. I'll eat all of it. Um, I can't wait. (laughs) It's great to talk to you. Good luck. Thank you. Amber Jenkins and her fiancé, Jordan Dennis, run Straight Goods. It's a restaurant just outside of Surrey, PEI. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Josh Block, host of Uncover Escaping Nexium from CBC Podcasts. I pull back the curtain on the secretive self-help group that experts call a cult and follow one woman's harrowing journey to get out. 
The podcast was featured in Rolling Stone magazine and named one of the best podcasts of 2018 in The Atlantic. Listen to Uncover Escaping Nexium on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. There are some businesses here on the eastern tip of PEI that just can't function without those visitors from out of town. Businesses like the Tuna Charters. Oh! <laughs> In recent years, tourists with deep pockets, mostly from the United States, come up to PEI in the hopes of hooking the big one. There's the leader. There's the big boy. He's a big one. Oh, a little size of the back on him. Captain Troy Bruce is one half of Bruce Brothers Charters, based out of North Lake, just north of Surrey. Troy, good morning. Good morning, Matt. How much business would you have normally done this past year, uh, taking people out to fish for tuna? Probably combined amongst all our boats, you know, 100 plus days wow. um, is a typical year. Um, 2020, we did three. Three? Three days, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I mean, it's, I don't mean to ask about money, but that's a huge drop in, in money coming in. It's, it's substantial. Yes. Yeah. It is quite a, quite a change. You know, typically we're busy. Our busiest is September, early October with a few scattered days, you know, in late July and August. So yeah, it was, it was an impact on all of us and, uh, not just our business, but the other charter operators, on the island too. It was quite a hit. Tell me a bit about the clients that book these trips with you. I mean, how would you describe them? Our clients for the most part are wealthy people with, you know, a lot of disposable income. Biggest portion of our clientele are international with the bulk of them being from the U S but um, we've hosted people from New Zealand, Australia, Asia, Europe from all over the world. So when they come here, they just don't spend money on on the boat. They spend it on on everything around the community, at the airports, getting here, and the car rentals, and Amber's business, and you know local accommodation. So it's not a cheap trip. No, it's not. No, um, we've never formally done any type of survey to you know indicate what these guys spend on a day, but. Uh, you know, it's in excess for a guy, I'd say probably $1,000 a day wow. is what they're spending. Yeah. So if you go back a year or so, I mean, I think a lot of us remember that week around the middle of March when it seemed like the floor just fell out and, and everything changed kind of overnight. What was that for you? You have these bookings and yeah. then the pandemic strikes. What happened? Some of our older clientele that we talk to typically on a monthly basis, just because we're more friends now. You know, said, well, we'll see. We'll wait and see what happens come September or August. And hopefully, the, you know, we'll be able to get in with maybe some rapid testing or the border with the Canada to U.S. will open. And, you know, and then we said, yes, that may open. But, you know, the border to get into PEI is another issue. So we just basically played it month by month. Um, and when it came to the point of telling them, you know, you know, guys, this is not going to happen. Most of our clients just rolled everything over to 21. So hopefully this fall, there'll be something in place to get tourism going again, whether it's rapid testing, uh, you know, to get into the province or whatever. And, uh, you know, if, if that happens, then we're going to have a busy year. In the meantime, though, what does that mean for a small business owner like yourself? And again, you know, it, it's not about specific dollars, but th that's a big drop in income. How do, how do you you know, not start to fret about keeping the lights on? <laughs> well, it's a, 
it's a big drop in income. It's it's not our primary fishery. Um, I should point that out, that all of us that do charter fishing, we're all first and foremost commercial lobster fishermen. So, you know, we've already had our lobster season under our belt, which ended in, you know, the first week of July last year. Catches were good. Prices were reduced, but we still managed to season out of it. And uh, so we weren't, we're not 100%. We're not even... 60% dependent on the charter fishery. It's just kind of a supplemental fishery for us. So it hurt the bottom book, but it didn't affect anybody's boat payments or anything like that. How are you feeling about about the summer that's uh, a few months away? Are you optimistic? I am going to be optimistic, yes. Um... <laughs> You're going to be optimistic. You're not optimistic yet. Not not yet. No, I'm not yet. I'm, I'm hoping that the government will come out with something that will, will allow our clients to have proof of negative results that will allow people to travel. You know, that's, and our guys are optimistic. Our clients are, you know, they're aching to get here. And, and a lot of them say right now, it's not even so much about the fishing. It's, I get out of New York City for three days. I get away from the hustle and the bustle and I get to chill out with you guys. The fish is a, is a bonus. Mm. It's been a hard year. And I mean, you heard Amber talking about the restaurant yeah. and, and the community pulling together there. People can pull together, but it's still been hard. How do you think people are holding up? Being from a small community and Amber and I are from the same community and we're cousins to boot. So <laughs> everybody is... They're cautious. Being from where we are and being isolated most of the time anyway, because we live on a small island, things changed for us, but not near as much as the rest of the country or the rest of the world. I think our community realizes that we they need to get the tourism sector open, but at the same time, they don't want a bunch of people in here from away. So it's kind of contradicting everything. But one guy described us as being a very, very large cruise ship. If we ever got, if we ever got community spread, we're in trouble. So is there anything, I mean, it's weird to talk about a silver lining in the midst of a pandemic, but one of the things that this year has done is it's caused people to kind of stop and maybe think about what's important and what's not important and what they thought was important. Maybe isn't that important anymore. And there are things that you can do with, and there are things that you really need to wrap your arms around. Has there been at all a silver lining for you coming out of this? Yeah. You know, I think this, this past summer, being that we've been very busy with the charter industry since 2010, we've never really got to enjoy our Island summer. You know, you wouldn't get to go to the beach with your with your kids or your wife or anything. So, so you know, that's this summer. I think a lot of us have, took advantage of of the quieter time and uh, got to spend more time with our immediate families and just kind of chill out and and uh, take a breather. I guess so. Kind of might it might help re-energize. I don't think COVID will deter anybody from not coming back. Um, if anything, you know, we we've had three charter inquiries this week already from new clientele. I think once once the borders open and people are allowed to travel after being isolated or stuck at home for a year, you're going to see a lot of people <laughs> on the move. <laughs> uh, I wish you the best of luck. It's great to talk to you. And um, I hope things uh, clear up. And as you say, people get on the move sooner rather than later. Troy, thank you very much. 
Oh, it's been my pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Bye now. Captain Troy Bruce is the co-owner of Bruce Brothers Charters in North Lake, Prince Edward Island. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts. It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. Teacher strikes, student protests, and a lack of basic supplies and technology. That was the reality for East African schools when social entrepreneur Benga Sesan grew up. In his talk from TED Salon 2020, he says centuries of wealth inequality is a global epidemic. And he shares the work he's doing to level the playing field in a way that's going beyond just putting computers and apps in the hands of the poor. TED Talks Daily is supported by Expensify, the most widely used expense management platform in the world with more than 10 million users. Time is precious, and Expensify makes it easy to manage your expenses, bills, invoices, and business travel all in one place, so you can focus your time elsewhere. You can even get reimbursed as soon as the next day. Whether you are a business of two or 2,000, Expensify is made for you because you weren't born to do expenses. Head over to expensify.com TED to get started on your free trial. I once watched this video of a relay race at a primary school in Jamaica. There are two teams, the yellow team and the blue team. And the kids are doing great, walking so hard and running so fast. And the yellow team has the lead until this little boy gets the baton and runs in the wrong direction. My favorite part is when the grown-up chases him, looking like he's about to pass out, trying to save the situation and get the kid to run in the right direction. In many ways, that's what it's like for many young people in Africa. There are many pieces behind their peers on the other side of the inequality divide. And they're also running in the wrong direction. Because as much as we might wish otherwise and aspire to build economic and social systems where it's not the case, global development is a race. And it's a race that my own country, Nigeria, and home continent, Africa, are losing. Inequality must be seen as the global epidemic that it is. From the boy who can't afford to dream because of the disappointment that could come with it, to the girl that skips school in order to sell snacks in traffic, just to fund our school fees, it is clear that inequality is at the center of many of the world's problems, affecting not just the bottom 40% of us, but everyone. Young men and women who don't get set on the path of equal opportunities become frustrated. And we may not like the choices they make in their attempt to get what they think they rightly deserve or punish those that they assume keep them away from those better opportunities. But it doesn't have to be this way. If we, as humanity, make different choices, we have the ability we need to fill that opportunity gap, but we just have to prioritize it. I grew up many paces behind. Even though I was a smart kid, growing up in Akure, a town 350 kilometers from Lagos, it felt like a place that was disconnected from the rest of the world and one where hope and dreams were limited. But I wanted to get ahead 
And when I saw a computer for the first time in my high school, I was spellbound. And I knew I just had to get my hands on whatever it was. This was in 1991, and there were only two computers for the entire school of more than 500 students. So the teacher in charge said, computers were not for people like me because I wouldn't understand how to use them. He would only allow my friend and his two brothers, sons of a professor of computer science, to use it because they already knew what they were doing. In university, I was so desperate to be around computers that to make sure I had access to the computer lab, I slept there at night. Even when the campus was closed due to teacher strikes and student protests. I didn't own a computer until I was gifted one in 2002, but what I lacked in devices, I made up for in drive and determination. However, camping out in computer labs in order to teach yourself coding isn't a systemic solution, which is why I started Paradigm Initiative to help all Nigerians learn to use technology to help them run faster and further toward their hopes and dreams and help our nation and take our continent great leaps forward in development. You see, to put it as simply as possible, my goal is for everyone in Africa to become famous. I don't mean like a celebrity. I mean, I want everyone to be like famous. When famous Onokurefe came to Paradigm Initiative, he had completed high school but couldn't afford college, and his options in life were limited. When I asked famous recently about where it would have been without our training program, he rolled out a list of could-haves, including ending up on the streets jobless and homeless, at the risk of doing things they wouldn't be proud of. But luckily, Famous came to Paradigm Initiative in 2007 because his friends, who were part of a youth group I told about my plans, kept talking about a free computer training program. And during his training, Famous paid close attention and excelled. When the United Kingdom Trade and Investment Team at the UK Deputy High Commission in Lagos asked us to recommend a few potential interns, we recommended Famous and a few others to be interviewed. He got the internship, and while there, he heard about an entry clearance assistant job at the UKI Commission in Abuja. He applied. Even though without a college degree, no one thought he had a shot. He was starting behind, but it wasn't the technology that helped him get ahead. It was the extra training. Training rooted in his community. Training that understood his context and his challenges training that helped him change his life for the better. Famous got a job and then saved enough to pay his way through university. Famous, a medical chemistry graduate from Delta State University, is now a chartered accountant and an assistant manager with one of the world's big four professional services firms, where he has won innovation awards consecutively for the last four years. But let's be clear, the computer didn't do that. We did. Without that additional training and support, Famous wouldn't be where he is today. Fairness is not giving everyone a computer and a spreadsheet program. Fairness is helping make sure everyone has the same access and training that can help them make use of all these things to improve their lives. When people are further behind, 
Fairness isn't giving everyone the same opportunity to compete. Fairness is helping those who are behind to get to the same starting line with everyone else and giving them a chance to run their own race in the right direction. Yet, there are millions of young people who have not been as fortunate as famous and I, who still don't have the skills, let alone the will, to face seemingly insurmountable inequality. As more workers and students now have to complete tasks or learn from home, this inequality is exponentially pronounced and with dire consequences. This is why I do what I do through Paradigm Initiative. But just like many intervention programs, there's a limit to how many young people we can reach through our three centers. We've now taken the training to where the kids are, but public schools are so ill-equipped that we have to bring devices, access, and in many cases, we have to provide power supply. Since 2007, we've worked with young Nigerians in order to improve their lives and that of their families. To give just one example, Ogochuku Obi's father kicked her, her sisters, and her mom out because he preferred to have a son. But when she completed her program, got a job, and became the family's breadwinner, her father came calling, admitting that he was wrong about the worth of the girl. In addition to our work at the training centers and in schools, we're now planning to acquire mobile learning units, buses equipped with access, with devices, and with power, and that can serve multiple schools. Yes, we need better access to technology and policies that facilitate open internet access, freedom of expression, and more. But the best computers in the world could fall in a democratic forest, but no one would hear them, let alone use them, if they were miles away hauling water from a well or foraging for scrap metal to pay school fees in a school that can't even teach them computer skills. Just like the fanciest sneakers in the world can't help a runner miles behind everyone else. I'll never forget being invited back to my high school while I was Nigeria's Information Technology Youth Ambassador. It was 10 years after I had been denied access to using the computer in that very same school. But here I was, being introduced as a role model who was supposedly shaped by the same school. After my presentation, that teacher, who said I could never understand how to use computers, was quick to grab the microphone and tell everyone that he remembered me as a student. And he was sure I had it in me all along. He was right. He didn't know it at the time, but I did have it in me. Famous had it in him. Ogochuku had it in her. The bottom 40% have it in them. Are we going to say that life-changing opportunities are not for people like them, like that teacher said? Or are we going to recognize that centuries of inequality can't just be solved by gadgets, but by training and resources that fully level the playing field? Fairness is not about giving every child a computer and an app. Fairness is connecting them to access, to training, and to additional support that they need to take equal advantage of those computers and apps. That's how we pass them the button and help them catch up and start running in the right direction and change their lives. Thank you.
Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Odoo. Meet Dan. Dan built a bike company, but his old software made it impossible to keep up with demand. It took so much time just to make things work, it was essentially sucking the life out of him. Then he found Odoo. Odoo automated his business by integrating inventory, manufacturing, accounting, and marketing. Now he can meet the demand and grow even faster with the e-commerce app. Thanks to Odoo, Dan doubled his revenue and can focus on what matters. Go to odoo.com slash TED to start a free trial. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash TED. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. If you're using anything other than Indeed for your hiring, you're wasting your time. Hire great people faster with Indeed. Only pay for results and get back time in your schedule. I've actually used Indeed.com before on the hiring end. Actually, not for myself, but for a niche site where I was helping security guards get hooked up with employers. And it works. It works really, really well. And to do it from a person's point of view of hiring qualified candidates it completely works. They have something now called Instant Match. They search through the millions of resumes in their database to help you and show you the great candidates that you want kind of instantly, which is pretty insane. So you can do this part really, really fast, meeting and hiring great people, right? That's what you wanna do. You wanna meet them and hire them. Unlike other hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts, so you can pause your account literally at any time, and so you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you see a list of great candidates with zero weight, and Indeed delivers four times more hires than other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. You want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash SPI. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash SPI, indeed.com slash SPI, offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. All right, I gotta tell you that this episode that you're about to listen to is probably one of the most valuable pieces of content you might ever hear especially if you are just starting out in your entrepreneurial journey. Yes, passive income is the goal, but that's never the start. There's a lot of active things that need to happen up front. And one of the things that you can do to start to learn how to make money online sooner than later is to freelance. And today we have with us Jay Klaus, somebody who in fact has now joined Team SPI. This may be the first time you ever hear from him the most brilliant answers to questions about how to get started online, especially as a freelancer, somebody taking your skills, helping clients, how to work with clients, how to have balance during that time, and how to create a request for proposal, all these things, you can begin to generate an income much sooner than you think. And I can guarantee that this episode will help you do that. You know, I don't often go hard with the quote unquote baiting upfront about an episode, but this isn't clickbait or anything like that because this is value. And I am so looking forward to the day when you, the listener, the one who's listening right now can come up to me or Jay or anybody else on the team and say, you know what? It was that episode with Jay that truly changed everything for me. 
that's gonna happen. So here we go, episode 460. Let's do it. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he rediscovered his passion for collecting Pokemon cards during the 2020 quarantine, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 460 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people, too. And today, speaking of help, we got some massive help coming in from Jay Klaus, who is now the Director of Customer Experience with an SPI, and you might see him if you're a member of SPI Pro. He's showing up every day going in there, making sure you're taken care of. And he also is a master at helping people start their freelancing careers. Whether you just want a little side gig and make a little extra money here on the side, or you wanna go full-time with this, or even potentially build an agency and have other people working under you to help serve more people, make more money. We're gonna talk about all the ins and outs of freelancing today, talking about strategy, tactics, mindset, the whole gamut. Here he is, Jay Klaus. Jay, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for being here, my man. So excited to be here with you, Pat. Thank you for having me. You know, one of my favorite things to do is interview other podcasters because we all have good audio. We know what to do. We were just talking right before this. You're like, hey, whatever I can do to help your audience. Like, this is this is perfect. I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about freelancing specifically. You've helped loads of people be able to make money from their skills, from their talents and such. And we're going to dive into that, the nuts and bolts, how to get started, how to price, how to work with clients, all that stuff. But I do want to dive into you. And Many people who have listened to the show already might know or have heard of you, Jay, because you are now a part of Team SPI. And I want to lead up to that here in the beginning in your origin story. But before you came to work with us, who were you? What were you doing? Let's start there. Yeah, most recently before joining the SPI team, I was a full-time independent creator for the most part. You know, to go back a little bit further, I got into entrepreneurship because I bought into the whole tech startup hyper growth idea. I grew up in a farm town. My parents were high school teachers and entrepreneurship just never really entered into my world, at least not nominally. So when I went to college, I went to Ohio State University. I found my way into an entrepreneurship organization and it just blew my mind. I could not believe that people my age were building apps on the app store and, and earning money doing it and starting companies. I was like, I thought the path was you go to college, you get a degree, you get the job, you work the job for 35 years, and that's it. And so once I realized that there was another path where you can build your own path, I was all for it. I was so excited about it. But my view was still kind of limited. I thought that that was tech startups. So out of college, I helped co-found a digital ticketing company, a little bit like StubHub. And we went through an accelerator. We raised some money and we were acquired in 2015. And it was rough. Like it was a hard, hard journey to build that company. And I didn't have a great experience with it, honestly. And so instead of going back out on my own to start some other tech company that I didn't know what problem I was going to solve, I took a product management role at another company here in Columbus, Ohio. But after about 11 months, I felt like I wasn't learning much and I didn't care too much about the healthcare industry. It was really frustrating because it's really broken here in the United States. And I went back out on my own and I didn't know how I was going to get by. I just knew that I probably could and started freelancing, even though I didn't call it that, because that was how I could earn enough money to pay rent. So did you just like quit one day and go, I'll figure it out? Or did you have at least a plan or a start before you made that decision? I was working on something. I had a kind of chance conversation with a friend of mine named Kwame, 
And I was telling him, you know, I think I'm going to leave my job soon, but I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't want to start another tech company myself, but I also just want to be out on my own. And he looked at me and he said, well, if I was you and I had the network that you do, I would consider facilitating mastermind groups because I think you could connect people and pull them together really well. And so while I was working that job, I started ideating on, okay, how can I do that? And I'd never been in a mastermind group. I hadn't heard the term before. He had explained what it was. And I thought, I think I can do that. I think I can pull together five of my friends who are working on their own independent projects and facilitate a weekly call with them so that everybody benefits. Now, the company was taking a hard right turn and trying to focus on a new product. And my role was going to change a lot. And so about a month earlier than I was thinking, I decided it was the right time to leave. And I I really left without a parachute. Like it happened really quickly. One day we had like a leadership meeting and they said, we're going all in in this direction. And I just knew I was like, this is my time. There's no reason for me to start this new role, be there for a month and then have to have them onboard somebody else. I should just go. And I said, I'll give you two weeks. I'll give you six weeks. I'll give you whatever time you want because I don't have like a burning next step. And they said, well, because we're making this move, you can just, you know, turn your equipment in and, and do your exit interview and you can leave. And so like in a 48 hour period, I was out on my own and figuring it out. Wow. And so you had this inkling of an idea from your friend to facilitate mastermind groups and likely doing a lot of research, figuring out what this is. And so what was your first attempt at actually doing this and where did it go from there? I reached out to five people in my network that I knew were working on something interesting on their own. And I basically said, hey, I want to test this. If you would humor me and agree to meet with me every week for 12 weeks, and meet for an hour, I think I can help you make faster progress on that project than if you did it alone. And a lot of people said no, frankly, I didn't ask for any payment. I was just like, just let me see if I can make this work and make this worth your time. Because my idea was, if they have a good experience, I'll document it, I'll tell the story, I'll have success stories, and I can parlay that into marketing it as a program and as a product, if I even like it, and if it goes well. And so I reached out to five people, and five of them said yes, and we started meeting every week for an hour. And then what? And then I started running out of money because this, as I said, was a unpaid pilot of this mastermind program, which I was calling an accelerator. And I didn't have much of a plan. You know, as I said, I was starting to build WordPress sites for friends. I helped a friend mix his first podcast episode. I helped another friend name his company. These were like freelance projects I was taking on before realizing they were freelance projects. And I got to a point where I was looking at the progress of the five people in the mastermind program, which I'd called Unreal Collective. And I said, these are interesting stories. I think I have enough here to talk about growth and I can wrap their stories into a marketing page, put it up and see if other people would pay to be a part of this program. And so I started marketing the program and pulled together the first 15 paid members of the Unreal Collective Accelerator. And that got me through the next three to four months. That's incredible. And I've gotten to know the Unreal Collective very recently here as we've been talking about this acquisition of Unreal Collective and bringing the entire crew over to SPI and you coming in and working now as somebody who's really taking hold of the community that we have and bringing all those experiences of facilitating these group meetings and interactions and something that we have definitely wanted to do more of. So it just seemed like a perfect fit. So when it comes to, I just want to grab one question from you before we start hitting hard on freelancing kind of stuff, which I know you help a lot of people do. Obviously, you've done yourself. When it comes to the idea of mastermind groups and facilitating these interactions and such, how do people, whether they themselves are facilitating them or they're a part of them, because I know a lot of us listening are a part of mastermind groups and such, how do we get the most out of that? What creates an environment that allows us to grow best? 
I've learned so much on this point. This is actually the crux of the mastermind program we have within SPI Pro is what I've learned on this part, which is you need to have aligned expectations and you need to have a fit between what you're working on and also personalities. And it's so hard to pull all these ingredients together and make them meld really well if you're not an empathetic person who can kind of grasp onto people's personalities and how well they might gel together because you need to have people who are going to be willing to listen to others when it's not their turn on the hot seat and still be able to benefit from it. They need to be open-minded. They need to be generous in their own feedback, but also there needs to be an element of this is closely enough related to what I'm doing that it benefits me also just to be in this room. And you need to have aligned expectations on when are we meeting? How long? How many times are we going to meet? Because if people don't show up, then it degrades very, very quickly. And so anyone can start a mastermind group. You can do it for free. You don't need to pay for a program. You don't need to join SPI Pro necessarily. But the thing is, when you actually invest into the experience and everyone else around you does too, they're more likely to show up to take it seriously and everybody has better results. So you need to have aligned expectations. You need to be at a similar stage in your business. And you need to have a group of people who are actually going to get along well interpersonally. How many people did you have at Unreal Collective before coming over to SPI? 110. It started with that first five, and then it grew by 15 to 20 people every quarter for the last three plus years. So I want you all to hear that. 110. You know, a lot of us want to start a business or freelance, and we're like, we need to, you know, have millions of people follow us. We need a blockbuster hit. We need a YouTube video that goes viral, right? Can you speak to the point that that's absolutely not true? In fact, probably the wrong approach when it comes to freelancing or starting anything from scratch? Yeah, and and the byproduct of why this worked so well for me as a freelancer and creator myself, most people who are drawn to freelancing, they want control and they want time and space to work on their own creative projects. But the thing is, if you don't embrace the business of freelancing, if you don't learn how to market yourself or sell yourself to get enough projects to cover your living expenses, you're not gonna have the time and space to do that. Like literally, so many freelancers are incredible talented creatives who are just a little resistant to embracing the business side of things. And if, you, if you're if you resistant, it's not going to reward you with the time or financial upside that you want it to, to put into your projects. It's kind of the strategy that I see play out time and time again, because you end up spending more time than you've ever spent making less money than you've ever made, and you're not making any progress on your own stuff. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And we'll speak to the business side of this for sure, because that's oftentimes the hardest part for people. But for those who are maybe, let's say, for example, that somebody just left their job or because of the pandemic is no longer working with the job that they had and they're out on their own and they want to start freelancing, they want to start making money, but they just have no idea what to do. Where would they start? How do we even start to believe that we have the ability to charge for things? I think it's important to first take a realistic and honest inventory of your skills. And if you think about the job that maybe you left voluntarily or involuntarily, they were paying you to do something. So think about all those skills, but not even just the skills inherent in the job description that you might have been fulfilling. Think about some of the other, you know, secondary or tertiary skills that you had to bring into that experience. Also, if you were a copywriter in your previous job, you might also have developed a lot of great marketing skills, or even audio and video skills, depending on how much they asked you to, to flex into other roles that the company needed. So really do an inventory of the skills that you've honed over the last couple of years, and especially mark down the ones that were things you really enjoyed. Because I guarantee you, there are people out there who are much further down the skill ladder on any of those skills that are much more willing to pay you to help them 
than to invest the time to learn those skills themselves. That's probably not their, you know, their mode of creative genius. It's not where they want to play. They would much rather pay someone very competent to help them out with those things. And that can be you. And it doesn't need to be a lot of people to be meaningful enough income for you to like have a good life and enjoy what you're doing and save time for your family or creative projects or whatever you want to prioritize. So we have a lot of students who I speak to who when I ask them what they're going to do because they either just got laid off or what they're thinking about doing to begin something, they get an idea. It's based on some skills or talents they have. And then they start designing the logo for their business. And I, I mean, I know that that's not the right first step. And, and I think most of us, when we zoom out, we know that to be true. However, that's the fun part. We get to make letterhead. We get to get our social media handles and such. But what is actually the first step people should take once we have an idea and a thought that maybe we can turn this into something? If we boil this down to the simplest level, for you to stay in business, you need to be able to financially afford to stay in business. What you need is customers. You need clients. And I know a lot of very successful consultants, coaches, freelancers, and they might not even have much of an online presence. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, if, if you're able to get clients through other means, you don't need all these fancy things. Now I get it. I've been there. I've, I've been the guy who made the logo first, ordered a bunch of stickers and, yeah. you know, bought a T-shirt. Like it's easy to hide behind those things. and It feels good. If that helps like boost your confidence and you feel like this is legitimate, I feel more comfortable now going out and pitching myself as doing this thing. That's all great. Ultimately, you need to be able to go out and market yourself, market yourself realistically, you need to advocate for yourself because until you are comfortable advocating for yourself, no one else is going to do it for you. So in the beginning, you really need to be hyper-focused on how can I get clients? How can I get customers? How do we get clients? How do we get customers? There are a lot of ways. So for freelancers, I think there are three main avenues that I would consider. The first being direct to client. It's the traditional I go to you, I learn about your problems, I say I can solve that for you. Here is the scope of work, here's, you know, the time frame and here's how much it would cost. That's kind of the most traditional. I also think that has the highest upside potential and the most defensibility for you as a freelancer because you're investing in your own reputation, you're investing in your own brand, investing in your own network. Below that, you have subcontracting avenues, which is basically to say other people are selling the contracts to clients. And it's a large project where they need more help. And you can be an extra resource to another agency or freelancer to help fulfill that project. This is great because you don't have to do a lot of the sales yourself. It's difficult because it takes a lot of control out of your hands. It's hard for you to control when other people are signing clients where you can come in. Oftentimes, you don't actually have direct interaction with the client. And if you do, you might have to be acting on behalf of the agency of note. So it's useful. It's a good way to help augment your streams of getting new client work or paid projects, but it's it's not long-term the best strategy in my opinion. And then the third avenue is a freelance marketplace like Upwork or Fiverr. These have supply and demand. They have people that are looking for help. They have people that are actively looking for someone with your skills and abilities, and you can bid on projects and get hired for short-term projects. And sometimes you can even parlay that into a relationship with those clients that becomes a direct relationship outside of the platform. But there are transaction fees involved. It's often a price competition. So it's sometimes a race to the bottom until you build your own reputation on the site. And if you haven't started on Upwork yet, it does take a good amount of work to build reputation on that site and start to get people to trust you and want to hire you and pay the rates that you want to earn. So I don't think of these as 
you have to pick one of the three. I think, especially in the beginning, you can explore all three. But long term, I would be setting myself up to be in that first category where people are hiring me and me specifically because they know me and they trust me and they want me working on the project. How do they know you even exist? What is the first point of contact and how do you phrase, how do you position yourself as somebody who could help somebody when you haven't helped anybody before? Totally. Great question. I look at it this way. Anybody who is going to hire you is going to hire you because they know you, they like you, and they trust you. So you can start from zero and find people, introduce yourself so now they know you, have enough interactions that now they like you, and have enough experience with them that they also trust you. That's an uphill battle. But if you look around you, there are a ton of people in your life who are already in that camp. They already know, like, and trust you. And I'm not saying to go and just try and sell all your friends and family on whatever it is that you're selling. But they are the first place that I would start when you start socializing the idea that, hey, I'm starting my own business. I'm going out there. I'm going to be a freelance graphic designer. These people, I refer to them as your advocates because they are really this extra set of eyes and ears out there for your business all the time. They're, they're essentially like a highly motivated, unpaid sales force for you. This is word of mouth. This is referrals. This is what most service businesses live on. And it starts with your advocates, people who already know, like, and trust you. You can reach out to them just to say, hey, I'm starting a business. I would love to catch up with you, learn more about what's going on in your world. And when you have those conversations, spend the entire time talking about the other person. Ask a lot of questions. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them how the year has been treating them. How's their family? They will probably start to focus on problems they're facing right now because we're all self-interested to some degree and we're thinking about our problems all the time. That's an invitation for you to see, can I help this person? Can I solve this problem for this person? They're going to want you to solve it if you can. And if you can't solve the problem, you might be able to connect them to somebody else who can. And now you've strengthened your relationship with both of those two parties. And that's a really positive impact too. So these, these conversations are about reconnecting with your advocates, making stronger relationships, socializing the idea that you are starting a business and freelancing and hoping that down the line with enough of these conversations, some of them will turn into clients, but a lot of them will turn into referrals. And where people I think go wrong here, Pat, is they, they try to force each of these conversations into a client conversation, which becomes really uncomfortable and burns people out who are close to them. But statistically speaking, you know, we've, we've already mentioned that you don't need a lot of clients to have meaningful revenue to support yourself. Most of the people in your life will never be a client. So don't focus on trying to make any one conversation a client conversation. Focus on making every conversation a relationship conversation because anybody can be a great advocate for you and your business, your mom, your aunt, somebody in the community, anybody. Dude, absolute gold. It reminds me of a conversation we once had here on the show with Jordan Harmager, who talked about the importance of digging your well before you're thirsty. Yes. If you are going out there and you're selling something or you want to hire somebody or have somebody hire you, and that's like the first point of contact, then you've already lost. You're digging your well when you're thirsty. It's too late. And this idea of going out there, and I love this thought of, these are my advocates, meaning they aren't necessarily clients of mine, but they're people who can help me potentially find clients of mine. And they're going to go to bat for me because we've already developed the no like, and trust factor, like you said. And it reminds me of how Jess, my executive assistant, who has been on the show here a couple of times, most people who listen who have been a part of SPI know her. The way that she had gotten the job with me and SPI was, in fact, 
her just sending an email to everyone she knew who's just like, hey, I'm not working at this place anymore. Just wanted to give you a life update. And if any of you happen to know anybody who'd like some help, I'm there for them. Let me know. Eventually, word got around and here we are. And she's been working with me for nearly a decade now. And it's because she had advocates and she built those relationships ahead of time. I absolutely love that. And there's obviously a lot of nuances to you know, the contracts and the clients and, and payments and pricing and, and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I want to skip over that because that's the weeds and the details. And we'll talk a little bit here about some additional resources where people can go and get more information from you because those are the things that often can, can drag people down. But I think what I want to talk about now is what is it like to work with a client now? And how do we foster that relationship? What's the structure like of working with a client? And, you know, what are the nuances of that? What's the etiquette, if you will, in the world of freelancing? When it comes to clients, actually, I'd love to I'd love to introduce this with a little bit of a story, which is to say, in Hollywood, this is something that we probably don't have a lot of experience with, but we can visualize. You have casting directors and you have people who are auditioning. And the person going into audition is often thinking, gosh, I hope they hire me for this role. And the casting director, believe it or not, is actually saying, gosh, I hope this is the person that we hire because I'm tired of doing auditions. Everybody who is interviewing you for a freelance role or a project they want you to be the answer to their problem. So you're actually starting off on a good foot in just about any one of these conversations. But you need to be confident and you need to lead the conversation because this person is hiring you for your expertise. They want to put money towards this problem. They want to hire you and know that it's going to be taken care of. So from the first conversation, you need to be leading that conversation. And it starts with questions. It starts with saying, okay, so tell me about, you know, tell me about your goals here. Tell me about, why we're talking about this project. Let them stream of consciousness tell you all the context that they want to. And then it's your job to say, okay, it sounds like we want X, where you you identify the outcome. It sounds like we want a logo that really speaks to your brand, is aligned, and feels really modern. Is that right? And the client will say, yeah, yeah, that's what we're looking for. And you can say, okay, what is the time frame that you're working on here? And they might have not have thought about that, but it's important for them to think about that. And they probably have an intuitive answer. So they'll say, well, we'd love to have this done by the end of the quarter. You say, okay, I can do that. I can absolutely do that. We can have a great logo by the end of the quarter. For that to happen, we're going to have to get started by this time. And you give them a new date now to say, for me to hit the timeline that you've told me it's important to you, I can tell you based on my experience that it's important that we start by this date. How does that sound? And they'll say, okay, I think we can turn that around. Okay, great. Let me go back. Let me put together a proposal for you and crunch some numbers, and I'll follow up with you tomorrow to give you that information. Most freelancers won't ask these timeline questions, but they'll say, let me get a proposal to you. They'll send the proposal, and they'll never hear from the client again. And it's because the client isn't entirely sure that you can solve the problem. You probably didn't lead the conversation enough to make them confident that you know their problem and you have solved it before. And second, unless you introduce some sort of urgency, they aren't incentivized to make decisions quickly. We'd love to kick the can on decisions until we have to make them because we're afraid of making the wrong decision. And then when a freelancer follows up and says, hey, I haven't heard from you. What do you think about this project? It can feel pushy to both parties. But when you ask about the timeline, now when you follow up on the proposal, if you don't hear from them, you can say, just wanted to check in. I know you wanted to have this project done by the end of the quarter. And so for us to hit that, we need to get started a week from now. So I'd love to hear what you think about this and if you're willing to get started. Now it's not about your timeline. You're not pushing them on your timetable. You're saying, listen, I heard you and I know what you're looking for and I can deliver that for you, but we need to get moving. And it removes some of the animosity or some of the 
and a lot of times it's perceived pushiness on the freelancer's part to just move the conversation along. So it's about confidence. It's about leadership. It's about making the client comfortable that you understand their problem and that you are confident that you can deliver the solution they need. I mean, that is of service to them to help them reach their goals at the time that they want to reach them. I absolutely think that's brilliant because now it's not about you at all. Like you said, it's to help that person. And that's the approach that, you know, I always take serve first and that's of service and you can sell and serve at the same time. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. How about, okay, let's sign, we sign the contract, the proposal's good and it's a, I don't know, a month long project. It's supposed to take whatever it might be. Are we checking in every day? Are we like sending reports? Like what is that working structure like after the proposal pre-deliverable? I'll go macro and then I'll go a little bit more micro. Macro, the client wants it to feel like magic. As much as you can make it feel like magic that, oh, I signed this contract and now on the timeline that I wanted, I got the deliverable that's perfect. That's great. That's the goal you want. Now for you to deliver that magic, depending on the client, depending on the project, you might need certain types of information. So it's on you to be able to scope out based on the project, the information you'll need so you can do your job and try to collect that quickly in the beginning, make it as low stress and low input as possible on the client so you can deliver this magic. You'll have to read each client and how much they like to be involved or informed on the process. I can say, you know, I don't know a single freelancer who loves to be micromanaged through a project. That's not why they get into freelancing in the first place. But clients have varying degrees of involvement they want or awareness that you want. So if you have a client that's pushing for a lot of check-ins constantly, like, hey, how's this going? I would just recommend preempting that a little bit in the beginning. Again, it's about leading and it's about setting expectations. To say with my process, I want to make this as easy as possible for you. And so to keep you updated on how things are progressing, I'm going to send you an email every Monday to update you on the progress of the project since last week. That eliminates so much back and forth because the client knows I'm going to hear from this person on Monday. What they don't want is to feel like I just gave this person a bunch of money. I don't have any real oversight. Are they proceeding on the project or not? That's really what most clients who are micromanaging are trying to identify is, is progress being made? I'm a little afraid that I trusted this person I've never trusted before and already paid them and I haven't heard anything from them. So be proactive with your conversation, but let them know that, hey, I'll reach out every Monday. If they push for more of that, Maybe you set up a standing meeting where you say, I will bring an agenda. I'll let you know what information I need. Again, it's all about leading the process, continuing to reinforce. I know our goals. Our goals are the same. We're very clear on that. I'm confident that I can deliver it on the timeline that you want. And here's the process that I've seen works best. That's another thing that can work for you is to say, this is what I've seen work best in the past because the client wants to be sure that you know what you're doing. And because you have experience doing things like this in the past, they will defer to your leadership if you take it. That's brilliant. When it comes to work-life balance as a freelancer, I know that this is where often struggles can occur because there is no more nine to five. We don't leave work. We're often at home or in our office or wherever doing the thing and you know we just keep going until the thing is over and we deliver. How do you stay mentally healthy, physically healthy? How do you create that balance as a freelancer, you have to get comfortable leading yourself too. You need to be your own boss. If it helps, you can make Google Calendar or your calendar application your boss, which is kind of what I've erred on doing is basically saying, I will do the work of breaking down everything I need to do into discrete tasks, simple tasks that are bite-sized. I understand what it means to complete them. 
And then I'll look at my calendar and I'll block out where those tasks will happen. Because if you look at your calendar and you can't tell when something is going to be done, it probably won't be. So if you can avoid that by just plugging it in and time blocking and saying, okay, for two hours in the morning, I'm going to be working on client X. Then I'm going to take an hour break, maybe have breakfast, maybe have lunch. And then I'm going to work with client B for two hours. On Tuesdays, I focus solely on business development. Tuesdays is all about sending emails to new clients, having conversations. You know, this is an idea of theming your days along with time blocking. So you don't have context switching. It's really hard to have a deep work day where you're trying to do actual client project and then also have four conversations with potential clients. It's, it's hard to get in that mind space. So you need to think about your own, you mentioned time management. I think about energy management a lot, especially for creatives. I think they, they understand that. You know when you have your best creative energy and when you can really lean into it and probably do two hours worth of work in an hour if you're doing it at the right time of day. So protect that and block that on your calendar. Say, I work best in the mornings. So mornings are totally dedicated to client work. All of my meetings, all of my business development activities, that happens in the afternoon when I don't have that creative energy anyway. You got to lead yourself and you got to set boundaries for yourself. If you don't have a lot of experience doing it intuitively, literally time block your calendar on where you're going to get things done. Perfect. You've obviously helped loads of people with freelancing, and this is one of your specialties. We're going to talk about a special offer here at the end of this podcast for something where you can get a special deal, especially if you want to get deep into freelancing and make more money, but also staying balanced as well. Jay, this has been amazing. I, I do want to talk about one more topic related to freelancing, something that I know, even though I'm not a freelancer, is something that is absolutely important, often can be the driver for more sales for you and reduce the amount of work you need to do for marketing, which is a great equation. And that's this idea of referrals. When it comes to providing great work for your clients, your client can provide you more great clients. What is your stance on referrals? How do we best manage that? Sometimes I've seen people ask for referrals in a very sort of just, I don't know, just a not very personal way. And sometimes it's very off-putting. How would you recommend to best have the clients that you've served help bring new people in? I think this should be very, very natural and very, very relational. Because at the end of the day, if you do great work, it's likely going to result in a referral anyway, because you're going to be the first person to mind when that client talks with someone, one of their friends who's probably in a similar business, having similar problems. And they say, who did you work with who did this? I can see that your brand is fantastic. Your copywriting is amazing. Your emails are so great. Who wrote them? If you do great work, it's going to stand out and you're going to get referred anyway. So I don't think you have to be very pushy. I think it is worthwhile to follow up on successful projects and ask for testimonials. Say, I really enjoyed this work we did together. Would you be willing to give me a written testimonial? And if you want, I can take some of the comments you've made for me throughout this project, put them together and just get your approval on it. If it seems like a heavy lift ask someone to write a testimonial for you, say, a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned this. Could I put that into a testimonial? And they'll say, yeah, that's great. Testimonials are this amazing it's as close to a referral as you can get without it being an actual referral because putting that on your website, putting that on your social media, it's social proof. It's a third-party validation that your work is great. Of course, it's going to mean more coming from somebody else because of course you think your work is great and you, you want people to think that your work is great. But testimonials go a really long way. And then just simply tell people at the end of a project, be like, this was so great. I would love to stay in touch. Any other needs like this come up in the future, please let me know. I also love referrals. So if anyone comes to you looking for this type of help, please keep me in mind. It can be that simple. You don't need to be more pushy than that. You don't need to 
throw on a bunch of affiliate agreements with them for it. You could, if you're working with subcontracting agencies or things like that, you absolutely could say, by the way, anyone you send my way, I'd be happy to give you X dollars or X percent as a thank you. But you don't have to do that. Most of the time, people are going to be very happy to recommend you if you did good work because it looks good on them. If you are recommended to somebody else and you do great work for the person that they recommended you to, it looks good on the recommender that they made such a good suggestion. So you don't have to push too hard if you do great work. Hmm, Absolutely brilliant. Jay, this has been absolutely incredible. And again, I'm just so grateful to have you on the team now to help support our community. And speaking of supporting the community, for anybody listening who is interested in diving into the world of freelancing, Jay, I know we have a special thing. One of your courses, actually several of them, in fact, in a really uh, special deal that I don't know if is available anywhere else. So can you talk about that a little bit and, and where people can go and what they can expect? Yeah, absolutely. All of these lessons, much more than I could fit into a 30-minute conversation, as much as I would love to, Pat. So I've wrapped these into three courses underneath the brand Freelancing School, where I teach people to make a living freelancing. Business for freelancers, marketing for freelancers, selling for freelancers are three separate courses. However, Pat, you and I were talking, I bundled these together, and I wanted to make this available to the SPI listenership and community. And so for the next seven days, you can save 25% on that bundle, which is already a discounted amount for each of the three courses together, you can save 25% using the code SPI25. The link will be in the show notes, but you can also go to freelancing.school backslash SPI. Cool. Well, again, we'll have all the links and such in the show notes, but thank you for putting that together for us. And although, Jay, of course, you're on the SPI team now, you still have your own thing going on and your focus on freelancing is still continuing to help people. And this is a great opportunity for people to get in. And if you like Jay's style, you like what he has to say, I definitely recommend checking it out. That link one more time in case people are sort of on a run or on a walk and aren't in front of a computer right now. Freelancing.school slash SPI. Cool. Jay, thank you so much. We appreciate you. I'm sure people are going to hear more and more from you here now that you're with us. And just really incredible to work with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure so far. And we have so many great things that we're going to accomplish together. Thanks so much, Pat. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jay. Didn't I tell you that was value all the way through? Wow. So if you want the links to everything we talked about and also the special deal that happens and that, like Jay said, is only available seven days from the day that this is published. So if you're listening to this afterwards, you can still go to the same link and check out Jay's course and such, but we wanted to provide a special deal for those who are very interested in starting right now, especially in February, 2021. We're moving on some stuff. We're trying things out for the first time. Definitely check it out. And again, the links and all that great stuff and more info about Jay and how you can connect with him, as well as other members of Team SPI, you can go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 460. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 460. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Take care. And I'm looking forward to seeing you and serving you in the next episode. We got more heat coming your way. So make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, can't wait to chat with you then. Cheers, take care. Team Flynn for the win. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So, you know, a major hurdle many people face when they're starting their own business is selecting a niche or target market. This is important because when you nail your niche, you can more easily solve specific problems. Use the right language your audience will respond to. Cut through the noise and competition way more easily and be able to more likely become the authority for that crowd. 
So to help you choose your niche and start your business successfully, I'm actually hosting a free training on Monday, February 15th at 1 p.m. Pacific called Beginners Only, How to Start Your Business from Scratch. Again, February 15th at 1 p.m. Pacific. So I'm gonna walk you through the beginning stages of niche selection and how to start understanding who it is that you should be serving and how. We'll crush through mental barriers you have to starting a business. And I'm gonna give you the confidence you need to take the next steps. This could be the moment everything changes for you and your business. So I believe that you can start a business that you love that will succeed for years to come, but you have to nail your target market first. And this free training will do just that. Again, this free training is happening on Monday, February 15th at 1 p.m. Pacific. To sign up, just go to smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. That's smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars, and I will see you there. Hi, it's Forrest Whitaker, guest hosting today. If you want to learn how to take real, lasting climate action like I do, I want to invite you to join Countdown, TED's new global initiative to accelerate solutions to the climate crisis. Countdown is an open place. It draws on a diversity of perspectives to help us shape global and local solutions that make sense to the immense array of energies that the world has to offer. Now, here's a talk from the Countdown Global Launch event featuring climate activists Rawal Gumatsian and Zalala Madifras. And one more special thing about this talk, you hear actor Don Cheadle at the beginning and the end discussing the importance of community-powered climate solutions. To hear more of these ideas and get involved, check out countdown.ted.com and subscribe to the Countdown Podcast wherever you're listening to this. Home. It's where we celebrate our triumphs, make our memories, and confront our challenges. And these days, there are plenty of those. An historic pandemic, Wildfires, floods, and hurricanes all threaten our basic safety. These challenges hit even harder in communities that have been cut out of equal opportunities. In the U.S., unfair and racist housing policies called redlining have for decades forced black, brown, indigenous, and poor white families into areas rife with toxic chemicals that make people sick. They are surrounded by concrete that traps heat. Extreme temperatures demand more cooling, more money, more energy, more carbon. Our problems are interconnected. Imagine all we can do when we realize the solutions are too. At the Solutions Project, we've seen that some of the people most impacted by COVID-19, least likely to have a steady place to call home, and most affected by the damage to our climate, are already working on effective and scalable solutions. Take Buffalo and Miami, where affordable housing has become a community solution to the climate crisis. Buffalo, New York is the third poorest city in the United States and sixth most segregated. But our people power is strong. Over the last 15 years, my organization, Push Buffalo, has been working with residents to build green affordable housing, deploy renewable energy, and to grow the resilience and power in our communities. When we saw heating bills soar over the last decade, we organized to pass state policy, help small businesses, and to put our people to work weatherizing homes. We responded with eco-landscaping and green infrastructure when record rainfalls flooded our neighborhoods. We replaced the concrete that overwhelmed and made heat waves unbearable. Let us visit School 77 
an 80,000 square foot public school building that was closed and abandoned for nearly a decade, but pushed Buffalo and the community, transformed it into solar powered, affordable senior apartments and a community center. This is what the community wanted. When private developers were eyeing that school building for high-end loft apartments, 800 residents mobilized and came up with the plan. We became New York State's first community solar project. And during the coronavirus pandemic, a volunteer-run mutual aid hub. At Catalyst Miami, and the Miami Climate Alliance, we work with dozens of other organizations to enact policies that provide safe housing and protect the climate. Here in Miami, we've seen a 400% increase in tidal flooding between 2006 and 2016. And I've seen 49 additional 90 degree days per year since 1970. We fought for the Miami Forever Bond to fund $400 million for affordable housing and climate solutions. Yet every day we continue to see luxury high-rise condos being built in our neighborhoods, adding more concrete and heat on the ground. Some of our members are taking matters into their own hands, literally. Conscious Contractors is a grassroots collective that formed during Hurricane Irma to protect, rebuild, and beautify our communities, all while increasing energy efficiency. They don't think that anyone should have to choose between paying a high AC bill and living in a hot and moldy house that will worsen respiratory illnesses such as asthma or coronavirus. They fix problems at the source. Advocates across the country are holding their governments accountable to climate solutions that keep their communities in place. We need to push for more affordable housing, green infrastructure, and flood protections because these are the solutions that solve many problems at once. Climate change is the epic challenge of our lives, but we're confident we can solve it. Community leaders like Rawa and Zalalim are already doing it. We can create the future we want, but getting there is going to take everyone contributing around the world, wherever we call home. Thank you for listening to today's episode. doesn't have to stop here if you have any questions suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.